0: On this episode of the podcast, Brother Kevin and I discuss a concept that has been a sore spot for many people. It has been a troubling topic for many throughout the years, and that is how do we reconcile what we know about this world in which we live with our faith? It seems like science says one thing, while faith and the scriptures Say something else about the nature of the world, our origins, where we came from, the reality in which we live, and how it all works. This is one of those heavy topics that we really couldn't cover in a short span of time. We've made every effort to shorten our podcast and have shorter episodes, but this was one that clocked in in total length at just about two hours. So we're doing something different this time. We're splitting this episode into two different parts. This week, part one will air that sets up the introduction and introduces the concept. And then next week, we'll release part two that covers the rest of the story and helps put all the pieces together. We hope that this is encouraging and helps those that have struggled with this, as I did for so long, find a measure of peace. Because ultimately, that's the goal and that's what we are seeking to pursue with this podcast. We thank you for being with us as we explore faith and pursue God's grace. Once again, brother Kevin, it's Labor Day. Did you labor much today on this Labor Day?
1: I don't think I labored at all on this Labor Day. Did you labor on this Labor Day?
0: I did not labor on this Labor Day, unless you count the workout I got in this morning. Did a big chest workout, did a big arm workout. My wife and I are getting ready to go on our anniversary trip later this year, and I want to be ready for Mexico. I want to be svelte svelte. That's a fun word. It's not used nearly enough. But uh, in any case, most of my labor was spent doing that. And then I just kind of hung out this morning, didn't do a whole lot, hung out with the kids, played with them and put notes together for this podcast, because this is kind of a doozy of a topic that we're approaching this evening. We are discussing the dichotomy or so-called dichotomy that exists between science and scripture. This is something that one of the pieces of feedback that we've received from multiple people that listen within our audience has said that they would like for us to cover this topic. And you and I, we've kind of kicked that around a little bit. I've said, Oh, let's not get into it just yet. Let's wait a little while. There was other stuff we wanted to discuss and we've had enough people ask for it. And we've alluded to it enough that here we go. We're going to pull the trigger on it.
1: Yeah. I'm excited about this topic because just like the topic of hail, that's something that I have spent a lot of time studying and something that was really, I just, for lack of better words, became obsessed with when I was studying it because it was so interesting. And I found that that really helped my own faith. And as I have talked to others about the concept of hell and the difference between eternal conscious torment versus uh, annihilationism, it just seems like that has helped people to understand that hell is not a place where people are going to be eternally and consciously tormented. At least that's not the way I understand it. And that's helped other people in their faith as well when understanding God. Uh, I know with you, this is something that has helped your faith in understanding an alternative to some of the passages, specifically the creation passages in the book of Genesis. And this is something I really haven't done a whole lot of study on. Now, there are some things we'll be discussing into tonight's episode where I have put some study into it that I'll add to the table and bring to the table. But Honestly, this is going to be a lot of of Lee tonight, and this is going to be a lot of stuff that's new to me. So I'm really excited to hear it. Bethany and I were talking about it, and, and she said I can't wait to hear what Lee has to say on this stuff because this is going to be, this is probably going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people. Just like the series on hell was uncomfortable, and you know, you and I really don't, we really don't. <laughs> We don't care if we make ourselves uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I always talk about making other people uncomfortable, but we like to make ourselves uncomfortable because that's how we grow. And so I am going to be curious to hear some of your perspectives on this. And I know the audience is going to be as well.
0: Well, you, whenever you talk about being uncomfortable, that's one of the things that I love about jujitsu is that in jujitsu, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Because whenever you have someone laying on you and smothering the life out of, you, and you got someone trying to choke you or break your arm or break your leg, that's not a comfortable experience. And for me, having done jujitsu for almost eight years now, in studying the scriptures and learning more about the Bible and learning more and shedding some of those presuppositional husks that I used to be entrapped in, that's not comfortable either. But the more you do it and the more that you open your mind, not so open that you're gullible and you believe everything, an open mind, I heard someone say, is kind of like a parachute. You know, it needs to be open just enough to let in the right amount of air to slow your descent. You don't want it so open that you just billow in the wind as you plummet to your death. And you don't want it so close that it catches no air either. It needs to be just right. And in that sense, it it can get really uncomfortable. And one of the things that I want to say is, is that if this is uncomfortable for you listening, just hear what's said study it and you may arrive at a completely different conclusion than I have and one of the things that we kind of touched on a little bit when we went through hell like like you said that's something that I learned a lot through whenever we went through that subject and we covered that topic there was a lot there that I had never thought about a lot that I had never considered but it made a lot of good sense I still don't really know where I fall on that paradigm but i I know for a fact, I can tell you this, I'm leaning towards that annihilation or destruction of the wicked perspective more than I am eternal conscious torment. That really never made sense to me, and this seems to make a whole lot more sense. But as it relates to science and faith, especially because really the focal point of, of this discussion today for this episode is those first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we're not going to dive into the details of those chapters. We're just going to kind of enumerate what's in there just real quick, and then we're going to talk about them. Um, But for me, those chapters were unsettling in, in quite a real way because as I began to learn more about the world, and I began to learn more about how the universe worked, I realize, you know, what we see and what we understand is fact based on science, based on observation, based on things that we can see and hold and taste and touch. Well, maybe not taste, but things that we can see and that we can behold with our own senses, that we can measure, that we can experiment upon and reproduce. That's not aligning with what we see revealed in scripture. We're going to get into that as this goes on, but that was really uncomfortable for me. And there are a lot of people like me that are out there that have had those same moments of discomfort there are people that have allowed these doubts to creep into their minds and make shipwreck of their faith and they end up leaving faith behind i mean i did that for a while i talked about that in in an episode where i flew solo and you guys can listen to that if you want that was good yeah there's no need to belabor that point all over again for a lot of people though this is this is one of those things that really doesn't matter it doesn't affect their faith So this episode really isn't geared towards them. I mean, it's geared towards everybody. We want you to listen to be able to take something away from it. But this is primarily for those people that have wondered, what do I do with what the Bible says? And what do I do with what science teaches? How do we reconcile those things together? Because there are people that say they can't be reconciled. And I'm here to tell you, they absolutely can be.
1: one of the things that you have said a lot, and I like this phrase, you said that it doesn't really matter until it does. And that's how it is with so many different issues. There have been people who have asked me in times past, well, why do you put so much effort into studying the topic of hell? And one of the reasons why, if I ultimately don't believe it matters, one of the reasons why I still believe that is important we talk about it is because it could matter. It may not matter to some people, but it could matter. And that's why it's important for us to study these alternative understandings and understandings that many people believe are correct so that people have the opportunity to understand their faith in light of other things than just what they have been taught to believe. And so just like with you on hell, that wasn't really a big issue. That's kind of where I'm at on Genesis You know, I'm not a scientist by any means. I'm certainly not an intellect when it comes to trying, you know, I I think I failed like third grade science almost because (laughs) I just, I I loved group projects because that way we could at least do them together. AKA, I'll let the smart kids do it while I just, just sit back and watch them do their thing. And that's, this kind of is reminding me of that. I'm sitting back in this group project and I'm gonna let you do your thing tonight because... But, but this is something, while that may not matter to me, this is something that matters to a lot of people. And that's why Lee and I believe it's important to discuss so many different topics because something may not affect me, but it affects Lee. Something may not affect Lee, but it affects me. Something may not affect either one of us, but it affects you. And so that's why it's important to talk about these different things because faith is something that is very personal to each one of us. And while we yes. should all have the common faith of Jesus Christ, how we arrive at our conclusions and how we grow in our relationship is going to look very differently. Uh, It's going to look very different from person to person, and, and it's going to behave differently. And so that's why this is a topic that I believe there are a lot of people that are interested in who have thought about this before. And I know growing up, Lee, in the churches that I attended, to say that Genesis 1 through 11, and specifically the creation, Genesis 1 and 2, is anything other than straightforward literal history was considered blasphemy. I mean, you you might as well just be uh, an atheist if you're not going to take a literal, straightforward interpretation of Genesis chapter one and two. And so what would you say up front to somebody who's listening to this and they know what we're about to discuss and they're thinking, oh, my goodness, Lee... Does he not believe the Genesis account? What is he about to say tonight? What would you say, first of all, to get them to continue to listen to what you're about to say so they don't automatically just turn this off?
0: Well, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of throw the ending here in at the beginning. There will be qualifiers to this, and we're going to expound and explore this idea as we move forward. But first off, above anything and everything else, I believe with all of my heart, with every fiber of my being, that there is a God that He loves us, and that He wants us to know Him and be reconciled unto Him. The person through which we are reconciled unto God is His Son, Jesus Christ. And God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. I believe that the Scriptures are perfect, and we're going to qualify that, and we're going to talk about what that means later. I believe that the Scriptures are inerrant. We're going to qualify that and talk about that a little bit later, too. I believe that the Bible is trustworthy from cover to cover. From the beginning all the way to the end, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, there is not a single part of the Bible that is irrelevant. There is not a single part of the Bible that has no purpose or that has no bearing on my life or your life or any of our lives. There are nuggets and truths and timeless, timeless truths that we can extrapolate from the scriptures that we can read in order to know God and to know Christ. But I also believe that God reveals himself to us in the created order. He reveals himself to us, and the Bible even speaks of this, through the power of his majesty, through the power of his creation. I believe that God created everything. Everything that we see, everything that we we behold, this universe, the laws of physics, this earth on which we live, the laws of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics, whenever you get into quantum physics and you get into all that crazy stuff. God is the author of all of that order in the midst of chaos. He brings order to the chaos. But even with that in mind, we all say that as Christians, there are people who say that science and faith are at war with each other and that you either must ascribe to faith or reject faith in favor of science. They say that science is the boogeyman that comes after faith, that it robs you of your faith while you sleep. And if you're not careful, that science and the atheism that it espouses will steal the faith of your children and leave them as godless atheists. And the core of this debate, at the core, really is how the book of Genesis is handled, or at least the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And in that, there are three primary interpretive strategies that are utilized whenever you read Genesis. And like one of the things you just said is, is that you were brought up believing that Genesis from chapter 1 through chapter 50, it's all literal history. It is absolute fact, it is an objective retelling of history that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write down those things that happened before, and that is an accurate retelling of the ancient primordial past. Um, The idea is that it's literal history, that Genesis 1 through 11 is an accurate historical account of the actual events as they transpired. Creation occurred in Genesis 1 and 2 over six literal days, and God rested on the seventh. That Adam and Eve are two literal people that God literally created, and that there was a literal worldwide flood that reset humanity before things started up again. So that's the primary interpretation. Do well, you yeah, have anything I mean, you want to add to that?
1: Well, that's what the Bible says, so I believe it. Now, you can choose to reject it if you want to, but...
0: <laughs> well, the Bible also says that I can beat my kids and stun them to death if they don't mind. And believe me, the thoughts cross my mind a time well, or two.
1: And, and I think what you said is important for people to understand that when we talk about the Bible and we talk about what it says... This idea of the Bible says that I believe it is such a oversimplified understanding of the Scripture because no one is debating, and, and you made this abundantly clear. No one's debating if Genesis one through eleven or the whole Bible that we have is from God. The question is, how's it from God, and how we understand it. Is that as would you say that's an accurate representation oh, like, of what you're saying?
0: Absolutely, I, I've, that definitely sums it up very, very well because. So, Oh go ahead.
1: Well no, I was going to say so given given that fact. Probably a lot of people listening they agree with what you just said. They believe the the literal history. They believe that there was really an Adam and Eve. They believe that there was a literal 6-day creation. And I know I have preached sermons in times past on this and go to great lengths to prove quote unquote that this these were literal days and that this was a literal factual history. So are there other ways to understand genesis? And if if so what are some of those ways?
0: Well, as it relates to the days of creation, one of the ways in which this has been explained in light of an ancient universe has been the idea that these days refer to epochs of time and that God, you know, kind of put a little spin on the ball in a different points in history. You know, if the universe is 13 and a half billion years old and the earth is 4 billion years old. Well, then at different stages, God exerted his divine will and his force in order to bring about the next step in the creative process. That's one way that, that some people have looked at it. There's some people that have looked at this in terms of what's called the, uh, Oh, what is it? The days of, Oh, now I can't remember the word. I just went blank. I'm just kind of going off the cuff here. This isn't in the notes, but, um, (laughs) Anyway, I I can't remember what it is, but it's the idea that God basically postulated, and in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's planning. He's not actually creating anything, but he's thinking conceptually in functional terms as to what role these different things would take and the, the space of time in which those things took place are immaterial the perspective I takes a little bit different and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but those are two different alternative viewpoints for a literal six day creation. Um, that literal history requires a six day creation, but there's another manner in which Genesis is viewed or another lens through which Genesis is viewed that doesn't necessarily require a six literal day creation.
1: All right. What, that, what would that be? Well,
0: the, the second one is the concept of historiography. Now what historiography is, is it is history but viewed through a given perspective. So if we look at history, we like to think of history as the events that transpired in the past. Like I have a cup here on the desk on, on 9-7 of 2020, Kevin and Lee at you know such time recorded a podcast, and during the 15-minute mark or 16-minute mark, Lee grabbed his cup and took a drink. That's history. That's an objective telling of what happened. But whenever we read history, that's not what we read. Whenever we read about Genghis Khan's conquest of Asia, we don't read about just the facts as they happen. We read about Genghis Khan's motivations that he may or may not have had. We and we read about that through the Mongolian lens, but we don't read about it through necessarily the Asian lens. You know, there's that saying that history is written by the victors. You know, if you think about the uh, Civil War, the American Civil War. Our history textbooks are written from the perspective of the Northern victory, but in the South, especially in a lot of times you grew up in Alabama, you may have seen this yourself. There's some history textbook that calls it the, uh, the war of Northern aggression and history is given a different spin. And that, and that's what historiography is. Historiography recognizes that history is always presented through an interpretive lens. Whenever we look back at the war on terror that started on, you know, we're coming upon that anniversary of September 11th and whenever we look at that in the history books, a hundred years from now, the American version of that story is going to be way different than the Afghani version of that story. The American version is going to be way different than the Iraqi version of that story. You know, whenever you look at the, just the different wars that have broken out, you look at the different conquests that have taken place. All of that history is subject to the perspective and the whims of those who wrote it down. So there are a lot of people that look at Genesis in the same way, that Genesis, rather than being objective history, is historiography in which Israel puts their spin on what happened in the ancient past, how it happened and why it happened. And for example, if we look at some of the other ancient cultures that exist in that day, all of the ancient cultures had their own creation stories. If you look at the Babylonian account, um, the god Marduk went to war against the pantheon of Babylonian gods. He went to war against his grandfather and his grandmother. Now, Marduk was a a storm god, if I recall correctly, and his grandmother was Tiamat, and she became enraged whenever Marduk slew his father, according to the uh, Babylonian legend. Well, whenever Marduk went to war against Tiamat, Tiamat took the form of a great dragon, and Marduk Uh, shot an arrow through Tiamat's heart and Tiamat was torn asunder and the upper half of her body was thrust into the sky and her scales became the stars. The lower half of her body fell to the earth and from her blood, it intermingled with the dirt. And that's what gave birth to mankind. Um, the Atrahasis epic is an Akkadian creation story in which, and hopefully not everyone's fallen asleep now. I hope you're still awake too. But the <laughs> Atrahasis epic, and I'll I'll try to make this short. Um, the gods created demigods to do the work for them that they didn't want to do. Well, the demigods didn't want to do that, so the demigods created mankind so that man would do the work for them. Well, man. Uh, populated the earth and became so loud that the gods hated it. And so these gods flooded the earth because earth was too noisy. Humanity was too noisy. Atrahasis was warned by one of the demigods and built a large box or a large boat in order to save mankind. So you have different accounts in Atrahasis. You have, mankind coming into creation to do the work of the gods to be the gods indentured servants in the um, um, story of marduk and tiamat you have the gods going to war with one another to assert their dominance and authority but if you look at israel's accounting of what took place you have a completely different story their god doesn't have to go to war with the other gods their god isn't lazy and creates other beings to do his bidding for him The God of Israel is supreme and powerful above all the other gods. The God of Israel, Yahweh, speaks, and it comes to pass. He creates because he wants to create, and he has the power and the supreme capacity to create. He tames the waters of chaos. He doesn't have to go to war with other gods to bring to bear what he wants to bring to bear. And then whenever he reaches the crowning achievement of creation, he doesn't want humanity to just be his slaves and his indentured servants. The Sabbath day, a lot of people view this as Israel's intent of describing the Sabbath in the very beginning before the law of Moses even was, is that God rested on the Sabbath because he invites man to rest with him. So you see a stark contrast between the God of Israel and the God of the other nations. The God of Israel loves his creation and wants to draw near to his creation. He walks in the garden with his creation. This is completely revolutionary in that ancient Near East narrative. And in this sense, Israel is speaking to their natural identity. They are the children of this God. This is the God above all gods because Israel believed in Marduk. Israel believed in Tiamat. They believed that they were real, but that Yahweh... Jehovah, their God, was supreme and superior to all the other gods. This is who our God is, and this is who we are as a nation under his banner.
1: So how, how would you tie all of that back to explaining Genesis? What 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 would you say? Why would you say all that's important to understand or at least allude to to have good context?
0: Well, because there are a lot of people, a lot of people that are way smarter than me, Old Testament scholars that have written about this idea and have written about this topic. And they have said that Israel's national identity was tied up in being the children of God. And so in describing how the world came to be, they're setting the record straight and they're saying this is how our God functions. This is meant to be a testament to the power of God, not necessarily a literal telling of what happened. Now, even then, you still have a, a measure of, li- of of what is it? Literacy? That's the wrong word. Of literality. I don't even know if that's a real word. But we just
1: created a word, man. Yeah, we just made a
0: word, baby. Yeah, we're doing things on podcast.
1: Yeah. all kinds of things. On this yeah, <laughs> hey, hey we're we so if, smart. If we can rewrite the Bible, we can rewrite the english language right
0: <laughs> <laughs> undoubtedly that's what some people are going to say that we're doing but but the idea and the reason why that's important is because the best and, and there are several books of, that have been written on this subject um inspiration and incarnation by peter ends is one of them god's word and human words by kent sparks is another one um there's a lot of scholarship out there that states that genesis actually had multiple authors and that there were multiple editors of Genesis and that what was written in Genesis, it was a story that the Israelites told. It was an oral tradition that wasn't written down until during or after the Babylonian captivity, whenever the Hebrew Bible was compiled. So with that being the case, you have the Israelites trying to reconfirm their national identity in their mind be in light of the, uh, the exile, you know, if we're supposed to inhabit the land forever and we're not, we're in this Babylonian captivity, how can we say we're the people of God? Well, here's how we know we're the people of God, because our God created everything. Our God is superior to all the other gods, and our God invited us to rest with him and adopted us as his people.
1: So so I'm, fo- I'm following what you're saying, but here's the question I have, and I'm sure people listening at home would want to know how you would respond to that. So, So that's all good and well, but here would be my question based upon what you said, what you just said. How would that affect or take away from Genesis 1 through 11 being literal? Why, why, what does that have to do? Why would that make Genesis 1 through 11 not be literal or not even have to be literal? How does that affect that at all?
0: Well, and that's why whenever we consider the, the, I'm going to say it again, the literality of uh, Genesis, I don't really think this explanation is a very good one because it doesn't answer the question, did what happened in Genesis really take place? Is that really what transpired? Do we have a six-day literal creation with God resting on the seventh? Do we really see that coming to pass literally? Is that what happened? Did the ancient Israelites view that in a different light or in a different way? Well there's a third way in which Genesis is is approached and this is the this is the camp that I fall into. This makes the most sense to me because to me it has the best explanatory power. The historiography argument may be true to a point but like you said it really doesn't get to the core of whether Genesis is literal or not.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't really sound like it, it would have much effect either way. It's interesting and it may help us to understand other passages in different ways, but as far as taking the literalness out of uh, Genesis 1 through 11, it just doesn't seem like that would be a solution or an alternative that makes much sense, at least in my mind.
0: Well, it, it can, but it just doesn't do the job very well. You know, you can hammer a nail in with a wrench, but that's not the best use of that tool. It, it, it doesn't have the explanatory power necessary. Uh, the third way in which Genesis can be approached is, and this is a word, this is a phrase that's going to make a lot of people probably balk a little bit, but just bear with us. Bear with me.
1: Hey, bear We're with the, Lee. You don't have to bear with me. I'm I'm hearing this for the first time tonight too. Folks, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well,
0: well, the third way in which Genesis can be approached is theological myth. Now, whenever you say the word myth and Genesis in the same sentence, people flip out, people lose their minds. I lost my mind whenever I first considered that concept or first read after people that explained it this way. But whenever you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Whenever you look at any part of scripture and you consider any part of scripture being myth, you tend to say, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The Bible's the word of God. And if the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God, well, then it can't be myth. And if we say it's myth, well, it can't be. Those two things can't coexist. And the reason for that is, is we have too narrow of a definition of what myth is. So if you think about Aesop's fables, for example, those are myths. None of those stories are true. You don't have a literal tortoise racing a literal hare, but there's a great truth that's explained within that story. They're myth, but they are true. And we do have myth in the Bible, and everyone agrees that this is myth. Whenever you look at Jesus and his parables, his parables were fables, his parables were mythological. They were myths that explained a deep truth. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, used fiction to teach lessons. Jesus's parables were fictional, but they were absolutely and incontrovertibly true. Now, if we take that idea and we apply it to Genesis, we can think about it this way. If you look at genre and you look at different genres of scripture, we understand that you read different genres in different ways. You're going to read poetry in a different way than you read a recipe, and you're going to read a recipe in a different way than you read legislation. You're going to read legislation in a different way than you read a fantasy novel, and you're going to read a fantasy novel in a different way than you read a love story. And Within all of those, there are tropes that point you to what the genre is – you don't really even need someone to tell you what the genre of a story is. You'll be able to recognize that whenever you read a story. If you open up a book and you begin reading in a chapter and it says that on the dusty trail, the, the uh, wagon train stopped for the night with the cold night air and the pale full moon rising above with the howl and yap of coyotes far off in the distance as Cookie built a fire, you know you're reading a Western. If you open a book and you read it and the first line you read is once upon a time, you know you're reading a fairy tale. Whenever I say that Genesis is theological myth, and I do believe that it is, I am not saying that Genesis is a fairy tale. What I'm saying is that Genesis serves a deeper purpose and a greater purpose than giving us a history of how the world began.
1: So let and me, let me, let me, if you, can I interject something? or Yeah, 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 okay.
0: absolutely, brother.
1: So I'm just, I'm just, cause literally I'm hearing a lot of this for the first time too. So I'm, I'm thinking of quest- <sighs> questions for myself, but also from people who are listening just to, to make sure that we're all following along here with you. So when you say you think Genesis is, is a myth in the way you just described, do you think the whole, would you say the whole book is a myth or just some of the, the chapters in Genesis?
0: I think, and and this is just my opinion, and this is an opinion that's shared by a lot and it's rejected by a lot. So take it for what it's worth. There are a lot of pointers in the earlier chapters of Genesis that illustrate that it is likely mythological rather than accurate historical um, history, I guess. And for me, that cutoff is going to be shortly after the Tower of Babel once we start getting into Abraham's story because it seems like so many of those mythology pointers and myth markers seem to fade away and disappear once you get into the Abraham story. But before that, you have several markers that seem to indicate that we're reading myth. In Genesis, you have a talking snake. You have a garden in which there are two magic trees, one that grants knowledge and another one that grants eternal life. You have two people that are naked and unashamed that are walking with God. You have several things that indicate that this is, to me it seems like, that this is the author trying to tell us that this is not something meant to be taken literally, that this is something that's explaining a deeper fundamental truth about either Israel's national identity or the nature of man, the nature of sin, and the nature of the acquisition of knowledge in and of itself. If we start with the serpent, for example, we read the serpent. And whenever you read about the serpent, who, like who's the first character that you think of being correlated with the
1: serpent? Satan. That's, that's so, usually yeah. We just think the devil or Satan. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that's what we read about. That, that's what we. That's what we see whenever we read that story. And a lot of that is because we're conditioned to think that. But here's what's interesting. Whenever I started researching this and I started reading about this and studying on this. The serpent is never referred to in Hebrew literature, the Hebrew scriptures as Satan. He's just referred to as a serpent. And later on, whenever God curses man in Genesis three and God curses the serpent, he tells him on the belly of the ground or on the ground. Oh, how does he put it? That he's cursed to crawl on his belly in the dirt of the ground. That's one of the things that God curses the serpent with. Well, Satan doesn't crawl on the ground on his belly. It doesn't make any sense. And really in scripture, you don't see the serpent unless there's another place in the New Testament I'm not thinking of, but I don't see the serpent referred to as Satan until John's revelation letter. In Revelation 12 and nine, he likens the dragon to that serpent of old, Satan. And in Revelation 20 and verse two, he refers to the serpent as Satan. So John makes that connection back in Genesis. And based on that, many of us have taken it to mean that. But the issue with that is, is that John ties imagery in revelation back to Genesis time and time and time and time and time and time again. That's a recurrent theme that John brings to bear. John, in his revelation letter, looks at the end of days and looks at the end time, and he looks back into the deep primordial past of Israel, and he takes that garden imagery as he begins to discuss the new heaven and the new earth. In Revelation 21 and verse 23, he speaks of light without sun. There is no sun there. And in Genesis 1 and 3, we understand when God said, let there be light, he creates light with no sun. We also see the sun created in verses 14 through 16. In Revelation 21 and verse 1, John speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis 1 and 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. So we see John reaching back to that imagery in Genesis to speak of the new creation that will come to bear. In Revelation 22 and 1, when he speaks of the new Jerusalem in the city, there's a river that flows through the new city. And in Genesis 2 and 10, there's a river that flows from Eden through Eden to the garden. In Genesis two and seventeen, and in uh, chapter three and verse twenty-two, we read that there are two trees in the garden. We have the tree of knowledge. We have the tree of life. And in Revelation twenty-two and verse two, there are two trees in the new earth. Both of them are trees of the trees of life. There is no need for the tree of knowledge anymore because then we are known even as we are known, or we know even as we are known. As oh my goodness, I messed that up. We are <laughs> we know even as we are known. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Anyway. John draws from what his readers knew to expound new inspired truth. And he applies that imagery of Genesis within the framework of his apocalypse because it would be recognizable to his audience. It would make sense to them. So it's no surprise then that John ties his dragon imagery to the serpent imagery in Genesis. But even then, in certain mythological literature, You see anthropomorphic talking animals. You see that with the serpent. You see the two magic trees that we talked about that grant eternal life and eternal knowledge. And even the structure of the creation account in Genesis itself, in Genesis chapter 1, is organized as in what's called in uh, literature as a couplet.
1: Okay, what is a couplet?
0: A couplet is a poetic structure that organizes verse. You've heard, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and I love you. And Aww, I do love, I love it, you. Evan. Too. I, I love you. I yeah, it's so sweet. But the violets are blue and the I love you, that's a couplet. That's the rhyme scheme. You have A, 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 B, you have pantoums. you have haikus. I, did, I took a lot of writing classes whenever I was in college. But couplets don't necessarily have to rhyme. You see that in haikus, the five, seven, five syllable structure of that. In ancient Hebrew poetry, couplets were functional representations of concepts that were linked together, rather than um, rhythmic schemes as we know them now. In his book *Evolution, Scripture, and Nature*, say yes, Dennis Lamero, and this guy's a sharp dude. This guy has three doctorates. He got his first; he was a dentist. Whenever he got out of the military, then he got a doctorate in evolutionary biology, and then he got a doctorate in theology. This guy is a sharp guy. This is a book, even if you disagree with the idea of of theistic evolution, I strongly recommend reading his book because you'll come to a better understanding of that concept. Anyway, he says this, in my theological studies, I found the creation account in Genesis 1 is built on an ancient poetic structure called Parallel Panels. In the first panel, God forms the boundaries of the universe. Then he fills the world with heavenly bodies and living creatures in the second panel. The panels are parallel to each other. Now, what that means is that this couplet form of parallel panels has day one corresponding to day four. On day one, light and darkness are separated. Then on day four, the space is filled with sources of light on day two you see the waters separated by the firmament. And on day five, the space between is filled. You have the creatures of the sea and the birds of the air created. So day two and day five, they correspond to each other in a parallel panel in a couplet on day three. And day six, you see a correspondent land and water are separated from one another. And then the space is filled with beasts. And then finally the culmination of creation, man. So, if we look at all of this evidence, to me, this is strong, strong evidence that the writer of Genesis, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had something else in mind rather than telling us a literal story of how everything came to be. You have the genre pointers that tell us that this is probably theological mythology, you have the poetic structural form of the creation account itself, as well as a parallel and separate creation account listed in Genesis 2. To me, that evidence is really, really strong that maybe we've been leaning on our presuppositions of what Genesis should be for too long, rather than recognizing Genesis for what it might be intended to be.
1: So right now, then, if if you were to put your your arguments in summary, you would say that based upon the language, there's a, there's a lot of seemingly apocalyptic language that John pulls from in Revelation from the first part of Genesis. And then also when you look at the structure, it would read more like a, a myth story to teach a truth instead of factual history.
0: Yeah. And to me, that makes great sense of the, evidence it makes great sense of the literary evidence that exists and john pulling from genesis doesn't necessarily mean that genesis is myth because we see paul pulling from it as well and treating adam as a literal person which is something that we won't get into in this episode we may do it in a future one but the idea behind it is the serpent is a mythological trope. The serpent who talks, the serpent who is cunning is a mythological trope. And we don't see the serpent referred to as Satan until John pulls from Genesis to refer to the serpent as Satan.
1: Well, here's something that that I have found interesting. So I'm working on my new book, and I've been this isn't going to be a huge part of the book, but I, I am talking, I'm not really getting into creation much, but I am talking about Just how ancient Near Eastern thought worked and how they wrote and the parallels between the Old Testament and the Jews and ancient Near Eastern thought and other nations. And it's interesting because you actually do see that there are other creation stories, some which predate the book of Genesis. And one, for example, is uh, is a Babylonian story. It's the Enuma Elish, and I probably just really butchered that. But in that, no, you got story, it, Enuma
0: Elish. Yeah, different yeah, emphasis. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so, you know, and I don't know if you're going to be getting into that or not. But that that is something that was interesting to me because there's a lot of similarities to that. Everything starts with darkness. There's a six day creation. The waters from above and below are divided and there's a, a firmament and light exists before the creation of the sun, moon, stars. And obviously there's difference there's differences in these two creation stories, but they are a lot alike. There's a lot of similarities in the structures. There's a lot of similarities in the, the outline of these creation stories. So it does appear, at least on the surface... That the creation story found in Genesis, while there are differences between it and other creation stories in ancient Near Eastern thought, this is really nothing too unique.
0: No, and it isn't. And whenever we were talking about Marduk and Tiamat, Enuma Elish is where that story is found. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So that that's a story that predates it. But you know, there are some who would say, "Well, what are you saying then? Are you saying that the writers of the Bible stole that story?" And there are some people say, "Oh, well, those people they stole that story from the from the Hebrew writers is what happened." No, every nation and every culture had their own story of how things came to be. The question that we need to ask is, what is the purpose behind writing that down? Was it the purpose? of the ancient writer of Genesis, who, by the way, I don't believe it was Moses, but if there is, what was his purpose? Why did he write what he wrote? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire him to codify what he codified? The editor of the Pentateuch that put it all together, why did they do what they did and put it in the order they put it in? And to me, if we condense that down through a presuppositional lens, that the reason for that is to tell us how the world came to be, in a literal sense, I think we miss a lot of the theological meat that's on the bones of that account because really we are drawn into this. And we'll talk about this later, that false dichotomy of having to believe one way or the other. But I mean, I believe that Genesis is best regarded as divinely inspired Hebrew myth that provides a historiographic representation of Israel's deep primordial past. And, The purpose of Scripture isn't to tell us how things came to be. It's not to tell us, well, here's the origin of of the world. This is how it was all made. Its purpose is to draw us closer to God. Its purpose is to reveal to us something about the nature of God. And if we put ourselves in the place of an ancient person, how would they have read it? How would they have interpreted that? They may have interpreted it literally, but the meaning to them would probably be way deeper than that. The meaning to them would be, we are God's children. This is the God we serve. And, you know, the purpose of Scripture in the words of Sir Francis Bacon isn't to tell us how the heavens go, but rather how to go to heaven. And the reason I believe that this is the best way to approach Genesis is because if we look at Genesis' literal history, we're going to run into some issues. And before we get into those issues, I don't know if you have anything else that you want to say on on this topic or any other questions that you have.
1: No, no, it's interesting. Keep, keep going.
0: And on that note, we did keep going for a good while longer. But to hear the rest of the story, you'll need to tune in next week for part two of this episode of Reconciling Science with Faith. We never want to dismiss without thanking all of our listeners. We thank our audience. We love all of you, and we so appreciate your dedicated listening. Um, Share this podcast with your friends. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. Holler at us with any questions you have through email or whatever means that you choose to find us. Give us those five-star reviews, and share this podcast with your friends. Share it with people whom you think it would help. We appreciate all of you, and we'll see you next time.